Please be seated. This is not the sermon that I plan to preach this week. I doubt that any of us watched the news over the last 72 hours without being shaken by the pictures of devastation across Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Illinois, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Towns were shattered. Over 200 miles of countryside were raked clean by just one tornado. And it is still impossible to know how many people lost their lives in a storm that caught people unprepared and unprotected. Years of recovery work lie ahead of the more immediate task of attending to the dead and the wounded. And in just seconds, the lives of many families and communities were forever changed. It is no exaggeration to admit that the word recovery is itself misleading. How are we to make sense of events of this kind? At one extreme, there are those who will attribute them to the will of God. They will argue that there is a divine, inscrutable power at purpose at work in what happened. They will note that it is impossible for us to know what good will come from that night. Or they will argue that our faith was being tested. The arguments for this kind of thinking in the Christian tradition are rooted in theological convictions and in deep-seated emotional needs. Some Christians believe that there is no tenet of the Christian faith that is more important than the conviction that God is all-powerful. And they also believe that if God is all-powerful, then nothing happens in this world that is without God's direction or, at a minimum, God's permission. So, by definition, the conditions that spawned Friday night storms, the high winds that it generated, the path of the tornadoes, and the defenselessness of communities like Mayfield, Kentucky, were all, by design, the work of God. For those whose faith is shaped by this tenet, the logic often holds that specific people were spared and others by name perished. On this reading of things, there are only two responses that Christians can offer. We can bow to the will of God and look for the good that God may be trying to bring out of what appears to be horrible to us. Or we can ask ourselves if we have done something to deserve this disaster or have something to learn. But there are enormous problems with this approach to a disaster, like the one that our families and friends experience on Friday night. But the central problem is moral. If another human being had power of this kind, 
and used it in this fashion, we would instantly label that person as a moral monster or as criminally insane. Arguing that God does this kind of thing and subjects us to this kind of thing makes God guilty of the same charge. It also flies in the face of what we know to be true about the goodness of God and about God's will for us. Arguing that God has a secret purpose in disasters of this kind or seeks to teach us through misery also does nothing to ameliorate that charge. Superior knowledge and power are no defense against immoral behavior, even if we are talking about God. And to argue that it might be true of God is not only logically inconsistent, but it is hard to imagine what would justify the love and worship of a God of that kind. At the other end of the spectrum are those who believe that an event of this kind proves that God does not exist or at a minimum does not care about us. It will sound strange for me to say this, but I find this reasoning at first blush more attractive than the first approach. For years I have known and worked with people who have struggled to recover from suffering that they experience through no fault of their own. And when people have told them that God was the architect of their suffering, they have found it difficult, if not impossible, to ever believe that God could or would love them. That difference aside, however, the conviction that God does not exist embraces a nihilistic and tragic view of the world. If God does not exist, we may conclude that the kind of tragedy that occurred on Friday night is utterly random and meaningless. But if God does not exist or does not care, our existence is random and meaningless as well. We may attribute meaning to our lives and we may even act in loving ways toward our neighbors, but none of that has enduring significance if our lives are the product of cosmic chance. Our deaths then would be the end. We would soon be forgotten and our civilization would face the same extinction. So, what counts as a hopeful and Christian response to the events of this week? Oceans of ink have been spilled in an attempt to answer that question, and I cannot possibly begin to answer it effectively in the short time that we have. But let me offer an outline of a faithful answer. God is not the author of disasters. Creation is God's good gift. And in the beginning, it was perfect. But as an exercise of the freedom that God, that God gave us as beings created in his image, 
we broke faith with God and with that creation. And in a desire to be our own gods, we and with us, all of creation, now live in a world that is scarred by the desire to distance ourselves from the will of God. How and why that choice has spilled over into nature is frankly hard to say. We are spiritually blind to the ways in which we are called to live as God's viceroys in this world and to care for creation. We underestimate the extent to which God's longing for us is wed to God's longing for the world. We ignore the way in which the spiritual and the physical dimensions of life are interwoven. So the answer to how is difficult for us to discern. But what we do know is that we were made to live in harmony with God and with God's creation. And when we live as if we are our own gods, we are drawn into conflict with God's hope for us, with one another, and with the world around us. And when that happens, things go desperately wrong. Into that world, however, we also know that God returns in the person of Jesus Christ. Like the ultimate first responder, he enters the world as both our deliverer and as a victim. He re-enters the home he made for us to save us from ourselves, from the consequences of our choices, and from the disruption that has scarred creation. And he not only clears a path for us to return to him, but to return to that creation which he made for us absorbing the pain, the loss, and ultimately the death and dying that has scarred it. The place at which we as Christians are offered that hope is not back at the beginning, in Eden, or more accurately what it represents. It is not offered to us at the end of all things with only moments to navigate. And that word of hope is not offered to us so that we can escape and leave this world behind us. It is given to us in that place where we continue to give ourselves to God, where what it means to be made in the image of God continues to unfold in a world that remains scarred by the disruption that is the product of our distance from God's good hope for us and for creation. As the Apostle Paul put it, creation groans as if it were going through birth pangs, waiting for us to respond, to seek God, to live in new ways, to embrace the gift that God longs to give us. To paraphrase one Christian writer, the death of innocence is not the face of God, but the face of the enemy. To believe that may not seem credible 
either to our friends who believe that everything is God's will or to our friends that believe that God does not exist. But that faith is the faith of the church. There are those who will not accept it, but they will not dissuade us. We are not optimists. We are those who hope. We don't believe that we will be saved by inventions, by legislation, or by those who worship the God called the Ark of History. We are those who look to the crucified, resurrected, and glorified Christ. And we come alongside the one who enters our pain and finds a way through. And rather than arguing that those who died on Friday night served a hidden purpose or symbolized the triumph of death over life, we will embrace and care for our neighbors and friends and family. And in caring for them, we will witness to the one who was born, lived, died, and raised for our sake. The one who declares, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things have passed away, and behold, I will make all things new. Let us pray. Gracious God, lover of souls, healer, friend, deliverer, in sorrow we lift our prayers on behalf of our brothers and sisters, on behalf of those who have died, on behalf of those who lie in pain, on behalf of those who grieve, on behalf of those who have suffered loss. Come alongside of them as you have wed your life to those who suffer down through history. Reassure them of your love and presence. Find them in the darkness, sorrow, and bewilderment that fills their souls. Offer your strength. Remind them of your love. Bind their wounds. Come alongside them in your suffering and prompt us to follow you, making ourselves available to their need, their pain, and their suffering. Make us yours in the shadows, in the hard-fought fight, in victories won, in the triumph we await to celebrate, in the struggle that remains. Teach us not to sleep or slumber, to faint or surrender, that we might come alongside our sisters and brothers as you have come alongside of us. Until that day when all things are made new and suffering will be no more. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who with you in the Holy Spirit reign one God now and forever. Amen.